Some connected TV insiders liken fasts to the second coming of cable TV, but the services are very different, though they are still hampered by some of cable's legacy problems. Listen on for more. this week's edition of Inside the Stream. This is Will Richmond from Video News, and that was Colin Dixon at the top from End Screen Media. In Denver this week, right, Colin? You were there for the championship. <laughs> well, it turns out I was there for the punchline because I arrived on Monday night just as the Denver Nuggets were clinching the final game. So, yes, there was a tremendous cheer in the terminal. <laughs> as I strode towards the Uber pickup place. But uh, it was great. I think everybody was really happy and everybody I've seen is really happy here. But uh, now I was here for the stream TV show, which was been, which has been great. You know, Colin, I like the story told a little bit better if you said as you entered the terminal, there was this gigantic cheer. But rather than it being for the nuggets, it was for the fact that Colin Dixon was now in the house. <laughs> I can't think of a less likely occurrence, Will, I tell you. Uh, but you know what did happen at the show? I was very happy because I bumped into a good, uh, one of our listeners, Randall Green. Randall, thanks for stopping by and talking to me. And he listens to us when he's out walking the neighborhoods in Sun Valley, Idaho. Don't trip over, Randall, while you're listening. Uh, it was great talking to you. And uh, please, anytime... Will or I are at a conference, take it, take the opportunity to say hi. Absolutely. And so I think, Colin, you are going to get us started here quickly with a news item, then I'm going to follow you, and then we're going to get into some of the meaty topics that you were involved with at uh, the conference. You bet. So our friends at Hub Research, uh, they released some new data this week, and uh, they do a great job. Um, we've had John Gingak on the podcast a couple of times and their data shows that there was actually a decrease in the average number of tv sources used by each viewer they said that it decreased from 7.4 in 2022 to 6.4 in 2023 uh, so that's a pretty decent size decrease will and sort of backs up the idea that people are really got as many TV sources as they want. And it looks like those TV sources came pretty much out of SVOD because they also showed that the the number of folks that say they watch a free ad-supported TV service stayed pretty much flat between 22 and 23, 58% in 22 and 57% in 23. So I call that a dead heat in the survey world. So it looks like people are hanging on to their their fast services and they're giving up one or two of their SVOD will. So that's the first that we've seen a big decrease in the numbers from Hub in SVOD services. Right. And listeners will remember that some time ago, we speculated about the idea that fast could lead to the proliferation of fast could lead to slow SLOW subscriber losses on the way. And I think uh, I don't want to overinterpret the hub data for sure because they did not draw this conclusion and I don't want to either, though it does seem like the just the proliferation of popularity, the sustained popularity, if you will, 
of fast at some point starts to encroach on the way people are spending their time. And at some point, especially in a difficult economic environment, that's going to be felt in the number of paid services that consumers are going to be willing to carry. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's other evidence for this slow will, and that's from TiVo's Q4 2022 video trends report. And basically, they are tracking, they were tracking viewing time by business model for CTV. And they showed that basically the number of minutes devoted to fast services more than doubled in between 2020. 2021 and 2022, the ends, the ends of those years, and that actually SVOD decreased. The time spent with SVOD decreased slightly. So there's a little bit of evidence, I think, there that slow could be occurring, but I, I, not far from conclusive. So I bet we should probably wait for more conclusive evidence before we claim that slow is actually happening. But anyway, what did you see that caught your attention? Yeah. So I um really kind of two stories that fit together in some ways for me and by the way if you hear listeners hear thunder in my background right now it's because we're having quite a thunderstorm here in the Boston area as we're recording here on uh, Wednesday evening but um, two stories that caught my eye related were about YouTube one is that uh, they YouTube this week announced that they actually relaxed just a little bit the uh, conditions for creators to qualify for the uh, quote-unquote YPP, the YouTube Partner Program. So they reduced it from needing to have a thousand subscribers to 500 and also reduced the number of watch hours in the past year and or the number of shorts views in the last 90 days uh, from 4,000 to 3,000, 10 million to 3 million and also added a requirement about three public uploads in the last 90 days. So I interpreted all of that as YouTube looking to help earlier stage creators get a foothold, start to make a little bit of money off of the platform. Certainly, as we've talked about before, we know that YouTube is in a big battle with TikTok on the shorts side. And, um, I don't know that this could be interpreted quite as a reaction to that, but certainly helps um, YouTube be more democratic in terms of the creators who can make money. So that was on one end of the YouTube spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, the complete opposite end of the spectrum, is I read with interest a, a profile of Mr. Beast, who is the biggest YouTube star right now, and the empire that he's building. This was a a um, profile piece in the New York Times Magazine about Mr. Beast. We've talked about him before on the podcast. And I, I, I just, I think he's a really interesting guy. And what he's done on YouTube is really something. I think he, if there's such a thing as having cracked the code on how to succeed on YouTube, um, Mr. Beast, Jimmy Donaldson, seems like he really did that. He really studied hard on what works and what succeeds on YouTube and applied all those best practices and is widely followed now as a result and continues to be the leader. So two very different ends of the YouTube spectrum from super popular to the earlier stage, all of which though continuing to support my feeling that YouTube is 
I, as I'm not saying anything, nobody, anybody doesn't know that YouTube is a juggernaut, but that I, I just continue to be very bullish on their place in the video ecosystem, both from a creator standpoint and also from a professional uh, premium video standpoint as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. And there was actually some speculation on a couple of the panels that YouTube would sort of step up to be a bigger aggregator of TV content. And just as a reminder to our listeners, I'm sure they already know this, but just as a reminder, YouTube is by far the biggest service by time spent in the US on connected TV. It surpassed, at least according to Nielsen, it surpassed Netflix uh, over a year ago and just seems to keep on going. So this will just feed that, I would guess. Yeah, and in line with that, of course, the 800-pound gorilla of the CTV and online video advertising spaces as well. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Anyway, go on, Colin. Tell us about the conference and some of the key highlights. Yeah, well, it was wall-to-wall fasts, Will. Um, I think I'm all fasted out. This will probably be the last time I want to talk about fasts for at least a few days. We There were so many panels. I had a panel on fasts. Uh, I had a panel on fasts, and I think on both days it was just covered a lot. But the interesting thing was, with so much discussion, Will, it, it really began, it really gave me an opportunity to sort of step back and listen to what I think is a quite interesting divide going on in the fast business. So I heard the idea that fasts were cable 2.0 on multiple panels. And this really set me back because I, I do not think in any way that fast channels and fast channel services are a replacement or some sort of of formulation of cable television. That is not something that I've really thought about very much. And I I don't agree with it. And in fact, I, I was fortunate enough to interview Jeff Schultz from Paramount, from who's head of Paramount Streaming. And I asked Jeff specifically about this, and he was, like me, he was very strongly in the camp that it is not cable 2.0. Of course, Powermont owns Pluto TV, which is the number one, uh, well, I'd say it's definitely the number one channel-oriented service, although all the services have channels and and, and on-demand now. And uh, he had many reasons for that, uh, not least of which, you know, that it's an ad- a totally addressable uh, property, that they can formulate channels much more quickly, that it was uh, much more inclusive, that there were many more channels in the service. It just went, they were just on and on for reasons why it's, it's not cable 2.0. But there were other elements that suggested that that, the way cable tightly controlled fasts and particularly fast channels is something that is beginning to happen in our market. So there was one panel which had four different major fast providers on it. And there was sort of general agreement on that panel that there was a lot of control now in the number of channels that were being provided in their services. And ostensibly this was because they felt that there were too many channels and it was very difficult to 
for users to find channels. That was the reason given. Uh, but what that also meant was that they aren't really, there's a flight to quality among those providers. And what they're trying to do, they're, they're trying to populate the more limited number of channels that they're providing with big brands, brands that people know that they think will hold people on their channels. And they're also trying to secure originals and, well, more specifically, exclusive channels with premium brands that give that they perceive will give their fast service an advantage over another fast service. And this, uh, this really struck me as kind of curious, particularly when you hear somebody that's a fast provider that's tightly bound to a piece of hardware. And it, it just struck me as odd to think that a TV provider might believe that a single fast, exclusive fast channel would in some way give them advantage over another TV platform. And on one panel, they were asked about that and they sort of pushed back and said, no, it wasn't about that. It was about building, uh, building viewership with these exclusive channels. But I just really didn't see it. Uh, uh, in that way, I just didn't see how having an exclusive channel would do much in the way uh, in the way of building engagement or boosting viewership, um, because it's one channel after all. So those two things: this idea that it was cable's second coming, and the fact that providers are beginning to control the number of channels in their services, and this flight to quality in my mind they seem to be coupled and i wanted to stop there for a moment will and just let you give us your opinion on on that i mean certainly i agree with you the idea of the fast ecosystem as being cable 2.0 doesn't line up for me i mean we're all familiar with the cable business model that for the most part channels were networks were paid a carriage fee by the pay TV operators, and then they were able to collect ad revenue on top of that, unless they were premium services, of course, like a Showtime or an HBO, Stars, etc. So when I hear you say people are talking about cable 2.0, that feels to me a little bit like maybe some folks angling for a carriage fee somewhere along the way. But I think that's going to be pretty unlikely. So that seems aspirational <laughs> at best by yeah. fast channels if they're thinking they're going yeah, to I think I'd agree with that. wangle a carriage fee out of all this. Um, so, I mean, that would be the first thing that comes to mind. The second, in response to, you know, your thoughts about sort of the control, the curation, I mean, the big difference, obviously, between cable world, pay TV world was there was finite shelf space and the distributor did, in fact, control that shelf space. Whereas here, what we're talking about fundamentally is the internet, although I think there, to some extent, is a measure of control now of shelf space uh, to the extent that the TV OEMs have popular platforms now that they can choose to curate the content that they carry or promote in any which way that they choose to. And then other aggregated, non-OEM aggregators are in some way able to do that as well. So there is, I think, some, it's not, let's call it a technology-based 
control point like it was in the pay TV world with a set-top box. Uh, but there is some de facto control through just sheer audience and scale that is giving certain providers an advantage to position relative to content networks and fast channels that want to get in front of big audiences. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons given, one of the principal reasons given, and, and a constant theme, I would say, on many of the panels was discoverability. And, you know, part of the problem here, Will, is that the tool that we've been given to navigate this multi, you know, these hundreds of channels, fast channels, is the traditional TV guide. And this guide didn't work well moments after it was introduced in 1995. As soon as we got, as soon as we got past 20 or 30 channels, it was a really poor solution to discovery. And here we are now with 250, 300, or even more than that in some services. Uh, and so discoverability has become a real burden on the user. And this actually was one of the reasons given for why they are restricting the number of channels. But it's, it's kind of ridiculous, Will, because as I say, many of them have now two, three or four hundred channels or more. And that means that it's still unnavigable. But that became really interesting because we had a presentation by Shalini Govalpai, who's the head of Google TV. And she was talking about their live guide and how they're making some improvements, which I which I view as um, evolutionary rather rather than revolutionary. But they are certainly very helpful that they're introducing to help people navigate their guide. And boy, do they need it because if you integrate all of the channel-based services into the live guide that's on Google TV now, you would have 800 channels, which is an awful lot of channels to navigate. But really, I think that that was one of the only one of a very limited set of ideas of how we can navigate all of these channels. And it's just shocking, Will, that after 30 odd years that we still can't seem to come up with anything better than the guide. One of the things that was talked about quite a lot was AI. And that was more in the context of metadata enhancement which is helpful, of course, because it makes the content more searchable. That is, of course, if the provider provides search, and not all of them do. But it also was used in terms of programming. And there was actually this idea that you could use AI to more personalize the channels, that the content in the channels that were being provided to people. Uh, and in fact, there was some speculation about why why the channels aren't being programmed different differently between services. Um, but I got to tell you, I, I don't see any point in in doing that, Will, because there's really no differentiation between the the services. They're all really going after the sort of general entertainment approach. Um, so you know, this this discoverability issue was widely recognized as being a problem and there was just very little discussion hard discussion on how that problem can be solved um so i mean i mentioned ai i think ai certainly can be a solution here that can it can do something which is very very difficult for us to do which is to 
not only track the type of content that we watch, but when we watch it, where we watch it, what situations we're in, and be able to target us with content, even when we might be watching something completely different. So for example, you know, somebody might know, somebody, somebody may know that I love sci-fi, and they also know that I always watch Premier League games on Saturday morning. Well, they could hit me for an ad for a new sci-fi show at the halftime in a Premier League game, and I'm almost guaranteed to see it. So <laughs> that's, and stop and watch it. So this is very hard to do, but AI can really help us do this. So these are the types of solutions that I think we need to bring in here if we're really going to make progress. But uh, this discoverability issue is a big problem. It is a big problem, and you know it's interesting listening to you talk about the electronic program guide. By the way, I think it's more than just thirty years old. I think it goes all the way back to the earliest days of cable, although it probably only became more popularized with advanced set-top boxes. But now, of course, it's become, as you're pointing out, a little bit of a crutch in terms of how the industry best thinks all these fast channels can be organized. Uh, to your point, maybe because there's an absence of anything better at this point. There's just, there's nothing else that's really been proven in other than recommendation engines, which work, they don't work, they're hit or miss, etc. So EPGs have kind of become the standard. And I think of it a little bit, I mean, this is an old story, but EPGs present to the viewer a paradox of choice issue, I think, which is that you scroll, 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 scroll. You keep scrolling. It seems like there's an infinite number of choices. Then you get overwhelmed as the consumer, as the viewer. And that leads you back to going to something that's familiar. So you see a brand that's familiar. You see a movie that you watched that you love, you go back and watch that again. You see a show that you love, an episode. I mean, there's always a Law and Order episode playing somewhere, right? Yeah. And and I think it's I think it becomes a real conundrum for the industry is this explosion of fast. And I know that we've talked about this before on the podcast, and this came up last week in the video news CTV ad summit. But um, it's one thing to launch a fast channel; it's a completely other thing to develop an audience for a fast channel. And I think that's a little bit of the reckoning that's starting to happen throughout the industry now. I agree. And, you know, that developing an audience, it's just, it's really tough. And I've got to tell you that this is, a, this is another problem with discoverability. And I think we've got a bit of a problem here where the needs and desires of the platform provider do not match the needs of the desires of the, platform, of the channel provider and of the audience. And, and here's why. The platform provider, one of the ways they earn money is by content providers, people providing channels and services on their platform, buying advertising to promote the content and the service to people using that platform. That's one of the ways that Roku earns money, and I think they, all, all the platforms are earning money to do this. But here's the thing. When somebody introduces a more niche channel, they're probably not as financially able to pay for that advertising as other folks and the problem is that they can't pay for it but then 
they won't find their audience, which is necessarily a bit smaller than, than maybe for some of the bigger channels. So what that leads to is a situation where you have people using your service who really want these niche channels. They will watch them. And because they're niche, they probably match really closely and you'll get great viewership from a smaller number of viewers. But you won't, but you're not going to tell them about, about this unless the provider of the channel pays you to tell them that it's there. And I think this is a real problem. Um, this is one of the discovery, discoverability problems that I, I don't see a solution for in the short term because, you know, this is a key way that Roku and um, Vizio and everybody else who's, who's providing TVOS is, is earning money. This is one of the concerns I have, Will, here. The, the, the restrictions on the number of channels restricts the choice. This flight to quality restricts the ability for smaller providers to reach an audience. And I've been, I've been, I think I've been like four conferences in the last three weeks. And I have run into providers of smaller channels all complaining that they're finding it really difficult to get, get carriage on the fast services now. And I ran into one today, LATV. They're, they're converting from being a broadcast property to fast services. And, you know, it's tough. It's tough for them to get carriage. And I, I'd say one more. Well, sorry, I'll stop. And you obviously have something you want to say. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say this. I would file all of this under the expression that I think I learned in the playground many decades ago, which is tough noogies. That's <laughs> just the way the world works. And if you're somebody like Roku that has 70 million actives and you've invested literally billions of dollars getting that audience and some new fast channel comes along that wants to be in front of that audience, it's going to cost. And that's just the way the world works. It reminds me a little bit of a long while ago, one of my college roommates went to work at Procter & Gamble after college in sales and taught me about the concept of so-called slotting fees in the grocery business, where if you're launching a new consumer product and you want to get special attention in the aisle, you have to pay a fee in order to essentially rent that real estate. And it's no different here, what we're seeing in our industry. And so it's, it is a tough noogie situation for the, for the earlier stage of the startups that don't have brands or really any leverage. And I personally don't see that changing anytime soon, Colin. I mean, there's always going to be a place for content providers to build brands in social and organically in search, etc. But as far as getting a prominent place on a front screen of a CTV maker's device, I think that's pretty unlikely if you, unless you have some significant resources. Well, I, I can see a better way of doing that, Will, at least telling, telling people who you know, because you watch people's viewing behavior, you know the people who are likely to want this, at least telling those people it's there. That seems fair, and you don't, have to, you don't have to burden everybody with that. But I tell you, there was one thing that I'm very happy to see. 
at the show, um, there was an announcement of the Internet Streaming Alliance, and this is a group of smaller providers. Um, and the founding members of this group included Alan Media Group, Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment, Cineverse, Future Today, Reverie, Scripps, Tastemade, TMB, Vivo. So it's a, a decent whack, a decent number of folks. Uh, and uh, Philip Grolton, who is with Chicken Soup for the Soul, he said the formation of ISA is long overdue. Uh, we are joining forces to promote the value of independent streamers and to work hand in hand with platforms, advertisers and regulatory bodies to ensure that we have a healthy ecosystem that benefits everyone, not just the few. And I'm really pleased to see it. Well, I don't know about you. I don't know how you feel about it, but I think I really want we have an opportunity here for fasts to be to provide much more content that's much more closely suited to more people. We have a, an opportunity to make it a very diverse and inclusive platform. And I really hope that ISA can help us get there. So I'm very happy to see the announcement of ISA. I'm happy to see the announcement also, although I'm just slightly uncomfortable with the acronym, the pronunciation of the acronym being a little bit close for comfort relative to other acronyms out there. But uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hopefully that will help erase the other ones from our memory. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I'm with you. I'm all for I'm all for a thousand flowers blooming and for there to be diversity in the content ecosystem and therefore there to be obviously many choices for consumers I'm, I'm all for that it's it's a competitive highly competitive world out there as we know it certainly is but you know what i think we're just about out of time we're out of time and you're heading back home so safe travels uh, tomorrow colin and thanks everybody for listening in on this week's edition of inside the stream and we'll see you all again next week Inside the Stream is a production of In Screen Media and Video News, all rights reserved.